Welcome to Opera Fix for January 14th, 2018. We're in the second week of the Prototype Festival, and we have Chuck Sack's reviews for two shows, Fellow Travelers and Aquanetta. And the Prototype Festival isn't all that's going on. American Lyric Theatre just had its alumni concert, and Brooke Larimer has an extended interview with ALT's founder and producing artistic director, Lawrence Adelson. But first, here are Chuck's reviews. This is Chuck Sachs from Indie Opera Podcast, reporting on the performance of Aquanetta, seen on January 10th. The prototype festival production of Aquanetta, an opera by composer Michael Gordon and librettist Deborah Artman, begins with a dark stage except for a, a white video screen on one side. With no warning, the lights go out and the audience is plunged into darkness as our ears are assaulted by a driving, wild, hard rock-tinged prelude. While at the same time, we are watching a creepy, unidentifiable image on the screen. Slowly, the focus on the image pulls out, and we find that it's a blinking eye. The focus keeps pulling back until we are looking at the face of a young Latino woman. I, for one, was completely engaged by this production and score. It was exciting to realize that everything was being created live for the video, and the required amplification only added to the already edgy feel of this production. Except for two roles, the vocal sound is primarily female. Michaela Bennett as Aquanetta gives an unflinching performance laid emotionally bare, both by the camera that barely leaves her face. She soars, yodels, growls, and does it all superbly. Amelia Watkins, as the brainy woman, gives a bravura performance, intentionally overmoding as if for a silent movie. Eliza Bag, as the ape, sings so sweetly, you could mistake her character for an angel. Timor, as doctor, and Matt Bowler, as director, gave superbly energetic performances. The eight-member female choir from Trinity Wall Street were well used throughout and sang heroically, even while lying in strange, broken positions covered in blood. We, the audience, are made to feel like voyeurs in a twisted world that perpetually rotates around Aquanetta, catching glimpses, but never the full picture of her world. Until the final coup de théâtre, when her whole world breaks open, and we see what she sees. Fellow Travelers by composer Gregory Spears and librettist Greg Pierce is an emotionally engaging, highly melodic, and thought-provoking new opera. Prototype Festival is presenting the New York premiere in tandem with the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the American Composers Orchestra. Director Kevin Newberry and conductor George Manahan have more than ably guided their relative vocal or instrumental forces in service of a work relating the horrors of the Lavender Scare. Sadly, another almost forgotten period of shameful government-condoned acts against LGBT peoples. I have been avidly awaiting the chance to see and hear this opera, and was so pleased to find that it is well-deserving of the praise that has been showered on it since its world premiere at Cincinnati Opera. Tenor Aaron Blake as Timothy Lochlin, the young journalist 
who gets swept off his feet by the charming and dashing Hawkins Fuller, portrayed by Joseph Latanzi, is our guide into this vicious 1950s government world, where most everyone seems to be working for themselves first over the good of their country. Blake and Latanzi blend their voices beautifully even as they bear their emotions and bodies. They give multi-layered performances and share a stage chemistry that made me blush. The only character that appears to have a true moral center, though, is Mary Johnson, Hawkins' assistant in the State Department, and his best friend. Devin Guthrie gives a warm, lyrical, yet fierce performance as Mary, who quickly prevents Timothy and does her best to steer him towards a safer path. Even as one roots for a happy ending for Timothy and Hawkins, we know they live in a period of history that wouldn't allow that to happen for them. I wish I could say that our country has come so much further forward in respecting the privacy and rights of all its citizens, but sadly, that seems impossible as certain forces in our government try to roll us back to the truly not-so-good-old days of the 1950s. If you missed out on this New York production, then I would recommend you book your tickets now for the Lyric of Opera of Chicago's new production of this trenchant and stunning 21st century masterpiece. This is Chuck Sachs for Indie Opera Podcast. And now we join Brooke Larimer for an on-site interview with ALT's founder and producing artistic director, Lawrence Adelson. This is your 10th, you're doing like a, a retrospective 10-year... So this, this year is the 10th anniversary of the Composer Libertas Development Program. Right. Okay. Uh, ALT was founded in 2005, mm-hmm. but uh, the CLDP was launched in 2007. Okay. So this fall was the 10th anniversary, the start of the 10th anniversary season. Excellent. How's it going so far? Great. Uh, it's, Good. It's a busy season. <laughs> yeah. We um, accepted uh, a new group of resident artists this fall. We have uh, three composers, three librettists, and uh, for the first time a dramaturg apprentice. Uh, which Excellent. is a really unique uh, addition to the program yeah. that we had identified, you know, yet another void in the, the training of uh, you know, our operatic uh, right. writers or those involved in the development of new work. And as um, Corey Ellison is you know, a key part of our faculty, right. um, thought that, that was something we could, we could really uh, do to help the field is to look at how do we train dramaturgs with the specialization in opera for the right. future. Right. I mean, are, there aren't that. I mean, Corey's the one that I know of. In we the joke field. with Corey being the unicorn, you right. know, <laughs> the elusive uh, opera dramaturg unicorn. No, um, you know, there are a number of people now who are doing uh, new works development dramaturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, I do some myself, and there are some writers who are, are good at it as well, and some directors. But um, you know, Corey is one of the few people who is dedicated, really, kind of exclusively to this. But you know, being a dramaturg in opera is, is different than being a dramaturg for theater. I mean, there there's just different uh, skills, uh, different knowledge base that I think someone needs, although sure. they are certainly related as opera is a, dra- uh, a dramatic form. Um, but it's also being a dramaturg in the New Works development process is very different than being a dramaturg in the opera house. Where right. Your role is not about, you know, developing new work, but, um, you know, Corey often talks about a dramaturg in an opera house being the conscience of an opera house. Whereas uh, dramaturg uh, in new works development, I like to think a lot of it as being an advocate for the artist's vision in the development of a piece 
and you know it's really like being a diagnostician and, and right. helping them uh, refine their piece from the vantage point of someone who's not one of the generative artists in the work that sort of sure. outside set of eyes is really critical to, so to sort of look at like what's working and what's not working exactly. and you know if they're theatrical ideas that just are not going to play well or that right, kind of you stuff. Know, or you know or things that they they I think when you're in in the heat of the battle, so to speak, when you're in the midst of it as a as a generative artist, as a, mm-hmm. as a writer, or as the conductor on a project, or a director on a project, or the singers, I mean, all of the people involved in making the project are critical voices in the new works development process. But having an outside eye, outside ears, who don't have hands-on responsibility for part of its creation is really, really valuable. And you know, when I'm working on on developing a new piece of ALT with artists, my opinion about the way something is developing isn't important. It is the writer's opinion. It's their version of the work. We're not, you know, I'm not commissioning me to write the piece, I'm commissioning them. And so I, I think of my job being to try to help them facilitate their best vision of their work. And I think sometimes, artists who are involved in a piece, whether it's a director or a conductor, uh, their vantage point is just a little bit skewed. Not that the things they have to say aren't valuable, of course they're valuable and we want that as part of the process, Um, but having sort of a really neutral uh, platform to discuss certain elements of the piece, it can be really valuable. That's great. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. And so what is the dramaturg, I, I can't recall her name, although I did read it. Uh, Antigone. 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 Okay. So what is her background that brought her to this? She was, uh, she has a singing background and directing background okay. as well. But, you know, the the skills in developing a dramaturg are, are many. Um, it's not only understanding for opera, uh, the musical and theatrical sides, but it is a, a people's skill <laughs> process. Right. You know, you're dealing with personalities. You're sometimes you're you're um, a parent. Sometimes you're a psychologist. Sometimes you're right. a curator. Right. I mean, you're you're helping uh, helping to facilitate communication between the artists involved in making a project. And so, while uh, in in the program, Antigone is is having the opportunity to study musical dramaturgy, but then Corey is working with her a lot on developing the people skills that make a great dramaturg. And that's actually the hardest part. Yeah, I would imagine. And it's something that can be developed. And sure. I think um, I'll use myself as an example because, of course, I'm I'm a stage director, and a stage director is an interpretive artist. Right. Dramaturg is not an interpretive artist. So when I'm working in uh, the capacity of a dramaturg, I have to actually turn that part of my stage director brain off because I'm not there to interpret and put something up on stage. Right. You know? um, and I think that uh, what we're trying to develop is to hone a skill set which exists in somebody already. Obviously, she was accepted into the program right, of course. because she's we saw something. Right. Yeah, she's very gifted. She's very talented and very excited to be working with her. But... Um, Finding a way to use your existing skills to serve a different means is really critical in becoming a, a strong right. dramaturg. Right. I think Corey is one of the, the few people who, you know, she's kind of opera Switzerland. We joke, and she's so neutral in right. conversation. Right, sort of mediator. Exactly. Yeah. And that's really, really important because, you know, it's not about my you know, opinion or a dramaturg's opinion is about helping to facilitate the conversation to get the best version of what the creators are after. So, so that's, what, that's, that's what the program cool. is for her. And this is actually the first and the only program now in the country 
that um, is helping to mentor opera dramaturgs. There are theater dramaturgy programs, but this is the only program for an opera dramaturg. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for making that space available. Well, it's, you know, <laughs> it's an experiment this year, but it's something we're definitely going to be continuing. That's so, great. That's yeah. fantastic. Um, so tell me a little bit about, so this is the 10th year of the Composer and Libertas Development Program. Right. What were the first two years of ALT? So I started the program with the intention of, of creating this, this idea of the CLDP. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the idea to start, um, uh, originally I thought, okay, I wanted to start a company that would produce new work and um, as I, and I, I founded the company and I, you know, I got my 501c3 status, I was just finishing my master's degree uh, in arts administration. As I was doing my master's, my, my master's thesis really ended up sort of becoming a strategic plan for ALT. Okay. And one of the things that I identified, and it was actually in a conversation over vodka with Mark Adamo, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that there wasn't the same sort of opportunities for composers and librettists to hone their skills for writing opera as there are for young singers. And the same sort of thing didn't exist for writers. Right. And when I was thinking about starting a company that would produce new works, I was looking at statistics and, you know, how many new works are being produced? How often are they getting produced again? I would go see so many new works and I'd be like, wow, why are these so bad? Right, <laughs> you know, right, even, right. Even by people who are, you know, great playwrights or right. great symphonic composers, like, you know, what, what is it about people who clearly are talented but who aren't harnessing the expressive potential of opera to tell their stories? Right. And... I really thought it boiled down that there, to, to the fact that there wasn't an opportunity for them to hone their skills in a way that was really dedicated to operatic storytelling. And something like that doesn't exist in conservatory settings. I mean, it's remarkable when we talk to composers and librettists in the program, you know, who have advanced degrees, doctorates in some cases, you know, and this type of stuff we cover in ALT, they've never been exposed to before. That's and amazing. So it really, it really filled the void. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. it was the first full-time program uh, to really mentor composers and librettists together. Where the librettist is equal to the composer. That's something right. that's very important to me. Yes, of course. Um, well, you say of course, but it's not of course for a lot right. of companies. But still, <laughs> that's really <laughs> you know? interesting because I feel like with the recently, like I will say, in the last ten years. Directors have become more and more important in mm-hmm. in the producing of opera, right? It used to be all about the conductor. Mm-hmm. And so it strikes me that obviously then the libretto would be gaining importance. And Well, if you look at music history, there was a yeah. point in time in history where the librettist was printed first and bigger, you know, right, in of course, bigger yeah. letters than the composer. Sure. The star was the librettist. Right. You know, I'm just looking for equality. You right. Know, I, I, do, I talk to Mark Campbell a lot about this as well. Uh, it's remarkable. You'll go on websites at all companies and the librettists of pieces won't be listed. And I, I sort of understand where they comes from. I don't agree with it, but where it comes from in a, in a Carmen, yeah, you know it's Bizet. Or, right. you, know, you know, Marriage of Figaro is Mozart. But right. Marriage of Figaro wouldn't be Marriage of Figaro if it wasn't for Da Ponte as well. Of course. You know? Yes, of course. And so I feel like we in the field really need to, to take a look in the mirror and say, you know, why are we not acknowledging the contributions of our librettists because especially you know historically of course but especially with what's happening now we right. have this incredible group of librettists that are contributing to the canon and we would be nowhere without them right and it really actually pisses me off when i see companies that don't 
give right, to the right, right. Of course, yeah. yeah that, and so sorry, I go. That's it's no, a no. Rant, I know, but, but really I think you're right. And I, you know, yeah. I like. Of course, I think about libretists and like new works. And usually, they're listed in new works, but well, you with, want, but like the Mozart. license agreement says right. They have to. But I'll tell you, there's been many times, and I won't say companies where we'll license a piece we've developed, and it says very clearly, you know, the librettist must always be credited when the composers and the same font and size and everything. Right. And they say it's it's you know. Fred Flintstone's opera, the composer's name, whatever you know. Right. But they don't they don't mention the librettist Barney Rubble. You know, it's like right. they just don't even think of it. And I have to call them up and say, oh, by the way, I noticed on your website that you didn't mention the you know, the librettist was inadvertently, I try to be very politic, you know, it was inadvertently right. left. We'd really appreciate it if you make sure that gets corrected. That is fascinating. I shouldn't have to make those calls. No, and that <laughs> is know? fascinating. But especially for companies that are doing new work who yeah. have to understand that that's a collaborative process. It's getting better, but we yeah. still we still have to address it. Yeah. But happens in press. You know, press release comes out. The press release lists who the operas buy. Right. You know, and then the the news article that released that comes out for the season just mentions the composer. Right. You know, can you imagine what would happen if a press release went or a news article came out announcing an opera season, and only the librettists were listed and none of the composers? <laughs> I mean, there would be heart attacks <laughs> right. all over opera right. land. You right, know? right. So, and again, I'm just not me. I'm still not, you know, trying to, um, you know, belittle what the what the composers' contributions are. Of course, no, of course. Uh, but I just I think that um, you know, listen, opera is a musical theatrical form. And uh, we went down this road, uh, and because I was saying that at ALT, the amount of attention we give to the training of librettists is absolutely equal to the composers. And in fact, the librettists take all of the same classes as the composers and vice versa. So the composers are taking the lyric writing classes and the structure, you know, for libretto structure classes. Right. And vice versa, the librettists are taking the classes that are more geared specifically to the composers. Because we want the writers to be able to learn how to speak each other's language as strongly as possible, so that when they start to when they start developing works together, they can look at their collaborations, not isolated, you know, but not from just sure. their own their own portion of the project, but how what they do is really integrating with their writing partner. That's great. Part of this season is bringing back projects, successful projects from past years. Yeah, a couple of years ago, we started an alumni concert series. Um, one of the challenges, I think, with ALT in terms of building public awareness and, and building support is that so much of what we do takes place behind the scenes. Right. We wanted to provide opportunities to celebrate some of the success of our alumni. And, you know, we have alumni who are now writing pieces. They're, they're being done all over the country. Mm -hmm. And... We want to show the scope of their accomplishment, and many of these pieces actually have not been performed in New York City. So we started this series, and actually this Sunday we're doing a concert. Uh, we do one one of these a year now uh, at Merkin Concert Hall, and we were featuring three works on this particular concert. One by uh, Ricky and Gordon and Royce Vavrick. R mm -hmm. Ricky is not an alum of the program, but Royce, Royce is. is. Yeah, and Royce was actually in the first season of the CLDP. Okay. And has, of course, gone on to be one of yeah, the most prolific great. and amazing <laughs> yes. librettists in the world, yes. you know. 
Um, so we're doing uh, there the House Without a Christmas Tree, their piece. Um, we're doing a piece called Albert Knobs, which is being developed by uh, Patrick Saluri and Deborah Brevoort. Both okay. of them are alumni of our program. And a children's opera uh, that was commissioned by Houston Grand Opera called Monkey and Francine in the City of Tigers by Kamala Sankaram and David Johnson, both also alumni of our program. Excellent. So um, you know, five of the six artists are alumni. And the pieces could not be more different uh, in terms of you know their subject matter and, and musical style and uh, it's just an opportunity to showcase in New York some of what our alumni are out in the world doing. Is there anything else you want to tell us or tell the listeners? Sure well you know with this 10th anniversary celebration uh, we have this new group of artists our composers and librettists who are in the program. Um, the composers I just I should say who they are because they're amazing and, and very talented. Uh, Lilia Ugay, um, Xu Ying Li, and Andy Tierstein, and the, the librettists, uh, Julian Crouch, Lorene Carey, and Lila Palmer. The six of them are this winter and spring working on a one-act opera project uh, that is uh, guided by Mark Adamo as their mentor. And we'll have two public events where the audience can sort of get a look into the process one is something we call the Living Libretto. It'll happen at the National Opera Center. Okay. And it's a libretto reading and a discussion on the development of outlines in the libretto phase of a piece. And that will happen in March. And then in May, we'll be back at Merkin Concert Hall and we'll be performing these three one-act operas in concert with piano. And going to both of these events is a really interesting way to sort of track the progress of these pieces and to gain a better understanding of how new operas are born. That's very cool. Check out ALTNYC.org, <laughs> get our performance dates. And Absolutely. Time. And I uh, hope people come and check out what our, what our amazing artists are doing this season. Excellent. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for listening. And that's Opera Fix for this week. Thank you for listening.